every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. and welcome to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. I've been a fan of both shows since their original runs, and I've spent many years talking to lots of different people about them, but I've somehow never done a full rewatch, so this is going to be my first time going back through all the way from the beginning. I am familiar with the story and where everything's going, but my guests are likely going to be educating me at least as much as they will be our listeners probably more so uh, and talking with me today back again back from the void alexander lester graduate student and teaching associate in the department of popular culture at bowling green state university uh, alex was a previous guest on uh, episode four of this podcast talking about uh, the puppet show and nightmares i believe is what we were on there for Yes, that, okay. that was the episode. <laughs> All right, that was it. I just remember we had a, we agreed that we wanted to see more of, uh, of puppet. Oh my gosh, what was his name? Sid. Sid. Sid thank you, Sid. Sid <laughs> yes. the demon hunting puppet. That's right. Anyways, uh, Alex, uh, great to have you back. Thanks for being here. Um. Yeah. Thank you for having me. So, how are you doing? Uh, have you gone on any uh, demon hunting? international adventures have you found sid i have not found sid mm. though i feel like somebody needs to make a replica and put them on ebay so i can have it that's like the one dummy i would actually want in my house um, i you know, i have this maybe is, not <laughs> this, this is a spoiler for new listeners but uh, i have a puppet angel you have a puppet angel i have a puppet angel it's From not the, the smile time one yeah yeah it's, awesome. it's not the vamp face puppet angel. It's just the regular face puppet angel, but it's a puppet angel. My dream is to have a puppet spike at some point too, but we'll see <laughs> if that happens. Anyways, um, so uh, we've got some some big stuff to talk about in this episode. So I'm going to throw the spoiler warning out there for new listeners, how, you know, the crazy new listeners who are joining today for the first time, and then we'll get right into it. So if for some reason you are one of those crazy listeners, I love you. Welcome. Uh, and this is your first time listening. Uh, Conversations with Dead People is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and probably lots of them. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once, you press pause on this podcast now and go do that. Uh, you're going to get a lot more out of these conversations if you've actually seen what it is we're conversating about. So uh, with that business taken care of, uh, Alex, if you're ready, let's go to work. All righty. And that, I, you know, that thing that I say at the to get us started on every episode, let's go to work, that's going to make a lot more sense to some of my listeners um, 
way, way down the line. We are a long ways away. <laughs> if you if you are a new listener and don't know what that is, that that's, that's a thing. It's a quote, but you're not getting to it for a long time. I just realized that. <laughs> I feel so proud of myself every time I say it. And then I'm like, there are a lot of people that might not know what that is. <laughs> and anyways, so uh, today we're going to be talking about the two-part season two finale, Becoming, Becoming Part 1 and Becoming Part 2, episodes 221 and 222. That's a lot of twos. That is. Magical uh, or something. And you were, <laughs> uh, Alex, you were super pumped. Like, you, you were insistent that you wanted to come back uh, to rejoin me and talk about these episodes. So I have a feeling you are pretty, you have some strong feelings. You're pretty passionate about these. So why don't you share your, <laughs> your thoughts on becoming part one and part two? Yeah. So I love um, becoming part one and two um, hands down are my two favorite episodes of the series. Um, specifically, you have so much going on, but it is also the like, climax of all of the Buffy Angel trauma that we've had throughout the first two seasons, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you have, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you have also um, a lot of mythology building. Whistler comes back in um, and really this is like his primary kind of spiel on the show. Um, you have Drusilla killing Kendra. Like there's just so many things going on and ultimately you have the in becoming part two the Buffy coming out scene right. um to her mom uh which definitely resonated as a gay male uh growing up that was sort of the scene I think that really resonated with me um so there's a lot going on here <laughs> um yeah yeah these episodes do a lot of heavy lifting and and moving pieces around on the board uh, you said Whistler comes back isn't have we seen him before in the series? I thought no, this was his I think first this is, I think this is his first appearance. Okay. Um, I was mixing up. Um, oh, my God. What's the bartender? Uh, uh, Willie. Willie. Oh. Thank you. I was. I don't know why I was thinking of Willie as Whistler. He's not. Um, that's really <laughs> bad. Um, I'm supposed to be an expert. <laughs> Academia, right? Um, no. So, yeah. I think this is the first time. Um, he does have, like, a journey and evolution through the comics. But... Um, yeah, this is his first kind of introduction, and you have also um, a lot of backstory, which, I mean, obviously he comes in with the backstory of Angel, but the whole Becoming Part 1 is basically Angel's evolution, his um, firing, <clears throat> etc., if you will, you know. Yeah, uh, flashbacks to Angel's past and, and sort of his history with those various characters, Darla and, and Drusilla and even Spike, um, those are a pretty major element of his spinoff series, uh, which is still a ways off in the future. But this marks the first time that we've gotten this on Buffett. Well, I mean, actually, this is like the first major Angel flashback period. Yes, exactly. And you it's a lot, actually. It, it is episode, a lot. <laughs> Rewatching the first episode, I was like, because I, I always usually end up, while I'm doing my rewatch, I kind of usually not always skip becoming part one but i definitely kind of like am in and out on it and then becoming part two is like the one i'm obsessed with but um there is a lot of period um back story but there's also inconsistencies to um the backstories going forward into angel yeah specifically like the fact that he uh 
like was homeless on the streets for all this time. It's in Angel, they say, like it's shown that he was not completely homeless throughout all this time of his soul. And like, there's just some continuity errors, but um, it's interesting. Some, some of that stuff. So I, I caught that too, specifically the one about him being homeless in the streets of New York. Um, some of that stuff I'm willing to kind of fan wank. Like, I don't remember how much of that stuff that period gets filled in. I know some of it does. Not um, much. I don't think it, I might be wrong, but well, like my angel, my angel knowledge for the show angel is a little bit hazy compared to what I know about Buffy, but it definitely um, gets think... filled in a little bit. There are at least two uh, significant episodes of angel, the series that I'm thinking of. Right. The sole one where he's like, are you living his past? Are you now, or have you ever been? Um, and I think maybe Orpheus, which is one of my favorite episodes. Anyways, it is Orpheus. Yeah. 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 Um, That's so, what I would think. <laughs> so yeah, there, there, some of that stuff gets filled in, but I like in particular, I was thinking of, are you now, or have you ever been, which shows that during this period of time, um, he, was not clearly it was not always living on the streets uh hunting rats in alleys um but i'm kind of willing to fan wank that as he is so tortured throughout this whole period he's so tortured by uh this soul and these memories that won't leave him alone that sometimes he deals with it better than others and so what we yeah, see no, here I, that's what i was kind of going with as well like he's just able to sometimes it bottles up and he needs to go live on the street for penance right exactly yeah so you know one year he'll be able to live in a hotel and another year he can't deal and he uh goes out and sleeps in a dumpster or whatever but um anyways let's talk a little bit about the since becoming part one is so heavy on these flashbacks let's talk about that since this is all setting up angel um (laughs) I mean, we like you said, we get to see how he's his sired, how he becomes a vampire. I don't think I watched this twice in preparation for our discussion, and I, I don't think that we hear him referred to by his human name. Uh, his human name is Liam. I thought he was. It, I, I mean, I know that's his human name, but I don't think we heard that in this episode. Ooh. I don't. I. Uh, well, uh, listeners, when he was thrown out of the bar, or no? Because maybe, maybe there I, was no conversation with Darla or anything like that. Right, right. It um, would have only been a one-line thing. And and I did listen, like I tried to focus on that, and I I could I wasn't one hundred percent sure, but to the best of my knowledge, and listeners, uh, if if you know differently, please contact me and let me know. But uh, I don't think at this point that we've heard what his human name was, but. In any rate, at any at any rate, we see 1753. So this is, I've I've nitpicked this show to death so far for the podcast. <laughs> Every time that they uh, that this show like tries to nail down a specific date, like they say, you know, on on April 14th of of 1895, Angel was here in this city meeting this character, and then two or three episodes later, we'll find out. Mm, well, not exactly, or whatever. This well, is a... yeah. How are they traveling across? Like, because he talks about in the the judge episode where they're trying to assemble the pieces. He's like, "I can't fly. It's not safe." And I was like, "Then how the hell are you traveling around <laughs> during this time frame and getting like, especially when there's no planes? First off, at that time frame, but like, how are you exactly traveling across seas? Are you doing a boat? Because that's not very fast. So, 
I want to know that. Well, I've, uh, a lot of the the 17 and 1800 stuff, I think that I think that was all that Europe. Boats, right? That that was all Europe. I mean, uh, oh, yeah. of what we've yeah. seen so far, I can't remember if going forward we find out that in the 1800s he was also in America. I, I honestly don't remember, but the stuff that we see here, all of the pre-1996 stuff is all Europe. So, I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of traveling around in gypsy caravans, coincidentally enough. But at any rate, what I'm getting at is the show puts a, puts a date, like they date stamp it on the screen. So even the most casual of viewers <laughs> now have a date to keep in mind. 1753, Galway, Ireland, uh, is the origin of the vampire that we would come to know, that eventually would come to be known as Angelus, or Angelus, if you're one of the annoying characters that doesn't pronounce it correctly. <laughs> and I love, I love that scene. I love and hate that scene. I love that scene because we get to see... Um, I just love period stuff anyways, but we get to see Darla as much more of the Darla that I think of her as not the schoolgirl Darla. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Which was just like going forward, knowing what we know about Darla in the future, um, that the first, her first, like, what is it? Six episodes she's in four, maybe. Yeah. Um, they're just cringeworthy. Yeah. It's like, how did you, how did you make that leap from like this badass prostitute that like was self-empowered, but not really to like schoolgirl master's bitch, you right. know? Exactly. Like, exactly. So I love seeing, I love seeing what I think of as the real Darla. Um, for, right. For possible, yeah. for possibly the first time uh, in the series but I hate it because we have to endure for the first time. We have to endure David Boreanaz's Irish accent, <laughs> <laughs> which, which is famously, famously awful. Uh, see, I don't mind it that much, but I also, I mean, I'm American, so I can just kind of <laughs> negate that. Anything sounds exotic. I'm like, Ooh, shiny. <laughs> I mean, the weird, the weird thing about it, it does, it doesn't annoy me as much as it does a lot of the fans, but I, I certainly do hear it. And it is, it is kind of cringeworthy. And well, in all honesty, though, this is his first, like, they haven't given him much material besides right. brooding up till now. Right. And I think that, like, yeah, I mean, I don't think he had really much opportunity to explore maybe accents. I can't. I don't know. I'm just. Being well, I mean, he does. He does get better. Many fans would argue he doesn't get much better. And so I'll grant you that. But. You know, as the series progresses and we get more and more opportunity to hear his Irish accent, he David, he gets better at it. But and I will say that as much as people love to hate on uh, the Boreana's Irish accent here, um, it's not it's still not as bad as Kendra's whatever the heck accent that is. Oh, Kendra. I love her so much. <laughs> it is so bad. It is great, though. And it's also really offensive at the same time. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Bianca Larson, or Lawson, um, she is... This is... It's interesting, because she had been working for a while at this point by the time she got this role. So... I just, I find it interesting. And she was up originally for the role of Buffy or Cordelia. I don't remember which one. Wow. Um, yeah. So I just find it interesting. Um, but it is kind of, it is cringeworthy. 
it's it's terrible sure. it's terrible so they did uh they did david a solid by having the episode where we first get to hear him doing an irish accent uh we also had kendra in that episode so that takes a little bit of the sting that is true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but two things about both of those accents that I will note. Um, I feel like Rebecca Lawson, I feel like that accent is dialed back in these episodes a little bit. Oh, compared to the first one? Compared, which, uh, yeah. Like my line? Yes. Yeah, no, definitely. I thought so too. It's still terrible, but I feel like they've pulled it back a little bit. Um, and then uh, it's interesting to me that going forward um obviously and you know liam becomes angelus becomes angel and he drops the irish accent which uh, to me excuse me to me that seems believable because you know he's he's moving through time and he's i guess not trying to fit in with different cultures but i don't know i i can imagine that it's i can imagine a world where a 250 year old vampire would lose his accent it's just noteworthy that spike and drusilla both do not yes and also well okay so i can understand drusilla specifically um well maybe they were i don't remember the whole spike where he was living half of this time but drusilla right so the confessional booth that was really intense going back and rewatching that and realizing that like okay yeah um angelus is a psychopath i mean Throughout the whole season, we get that. But, um, like, just the, I don't know, the sacrilege of it. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. um, and the, the fact that I can understand, like, if she had an accent, um, that she would keep it. Because she's technically insane. And mentally, I think a lot of her is, like, fragmented back in that time. Um, it's like her human self is stuck, whereas her demon self is not kind of thing. Um, I don't know. I don't, I can't speak to her pathology as a, no, I like that. I like that. I think that makes a lot of sense. And as you were saying that I've kind of figured out, I've suddenly realized maybe why Spike's accent has remained because as we will discover later in the series, that's actually not Spike's real accent. (laughs) That is true. Like that, that, Uh, that accent, that whole personality is like an affectation that he has put on when we, find out what he was really like before he had a much different accent so oh yeah that is true he's like bookish self i forgot about that um yeah no i just i i thought it was interesting they also allowed um juliet uh landau is it landau Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah trisella um to kind of have more well she, she definitely got to have quite a bit of fun this season compared to what the rest of the series she's had um she got to really kind this this episode specifically um her just playing with the um the insanity of it all Mm -hmm. right like Mm -hmm. her um he whispers to me i can't do her voice but (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna try but no that would just be bad um he whispers to me and all this other stuff and just that like she gets she gets quite she does the in what she's Drusilla. I can't. I'm just so impressed by her work at this like t- point in time of the series because I was my rewatch up to this point. I was like, okay, the series gets 
so much better in quality of acting, writing, and just production value throughout the run. And like season two is this weird offshoot because it is like the first time we get a full series, a season order, right? And we get um, that it seems that there's a um, aesthetic change to like lighting and stylization of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more crisp and clean than um, it was in the past. And I thought it was interesting because even though that's the case, the acting is still somewhat um, cringeable at times. And then there's also uh, some really blatant mistakes they would not have made in the um, later seasons, specifically the um, fight scene in Becoming Part 2 with the sword. Um, I don't know if you were, when you watched it, you saw how bad the stunt double showed because the guy's receding hairline and David Boreanaz didn't have one. But it actually, it was like, wow, I did not catch this So like, hundred times I was sobbing at this point. Um, but yeah, it was, it's the production value is like going back and rewatching it. Cause it's been a couple of years, as I said before, um, it's quite, um, it, it's definitely, it definitely evolved by season seven. Um, oh, yeah. but even like, yeah. So like you're going back and I'm just like the acting for Juliet was just amazing. Whereas, um, you know, you have some other actors that are just not as good. Um, so I'll leave those unnamed. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I've in the, maybe it's just the material uh, that's covered in these two episodes, but I would actually say um, there are clearly actors in the ensemble in, the, in these two episodes that have more experience than others, but I think that kind of everybody really turned in a good performance. No, definitely they did. Um, I just, I just uh, am critical. Um, <laughs> well, that's, that's cool. That's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. I actually, that just reminded me for some reason. Um, Principal Snyder, uh-huh. he is a Nazi, according to Cordelia in that first line. And going back to our episode that's where right. there was a Nazi symbolism and he was introduced, I'm pretty sure he's a Nazi. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I sort of made note that she uh, that that was a funny line that she called him a I can now I can't remember what the quote was, but she does refer to him as a little Nazi, a Nazi troll or something like that. And yeah, uh, yeah, I had forgotten until you just said it, that the whole what's with all the Nazis was a big part of our conversation the last time you were on. It's really weird, but it's only now I'm like realizing it's like kind of centered around his character, I guess. Maybe I'm wrong, but. Um, I didn't see any other Nazi symbolism throughout the whole season, but maybe I also missed that. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I thought that was interesting, though. I was like, so maybe that explains his actions of um, wanting to get Buffy arrested slash out of the way. I don't know. Or shot. It doesn't make or sense. shot. Good Lord. Let's. I, mean... <laughs> I know. Like, I just like <laughs> the cops are randomly just shooting at teenagers that are, I guess she did just kick the cop's butt but like seriously yeah i don't know and and i i guess school wasn't in session at the time but it's just weird for me to see a cop just open fire on a fleeing teenage girl in the halls of a school and and i mean you do hear the cop say get down presumably (laughs) to snyder who is standing between her the cop and buffy but still the cop just opens fire 
that was crazy anyways yeah no it is interesting and it was very like convenient that they're there like <laughs> yeah they're never there any other night right <laughs> well i mean uh, uh snyder gets that fantastic line uh later on in part two where he's like in case you haven't noticed the police of sunnydale are deeply stupid yes exactly and that's also kind of like okay so you have an agenda that's still clearly not stated um what is this agenda buddy yeah like this is the first time we know he has like some sinisterness to him even more so than um we did before um so also uh a castle is really interesting because um this is also a continuity error with um spike uh specifically with the judge who was like also the bringer of the end of the world. Yeah. There's uh, a lot of them. There's a lot of them in the Buffy. Right. Race. Right. But he was like, supposedly the judge was really serious. Right. But, um, when a Catholic comes along, he's like, okay, I need to actually step up, um, and do something. Cause I don't want the world to end. And it's like, dude, continuity in your ideology. Like what's going on? <laughs> Is this just really about Priscilla, like an angel hooking up? I, I think, yeah um i mean not that i'm one to say that there are not continuity errors in this show but i'm tr- now i'm trying to sort of i'm doing the fan wanking thing again i'm like why would that be <laughs> i'm trying to make excuses for spike <laughs> um may, like the judge uh i mean the judge would have had to work at wiping out the world i guess since he would have to go around and actually like burn the humanity out of humans Instead of just sucking it into Instead of just completely okay. absorbing the entire planet or whatever the heck Hikothla was supposed to do. But I do think that most of it is is just the um the jealousy that he has of Angelus and his relationship with Drew. But And that's yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um it's yeah, I don't even know. But um Yeah, so the flashbacks, we also get the Buffy um first time slain mm-hmm. yeah. and the first time angel views buffy slash she finds out she is a slayer um which is creepy he stalks her let's be real it, it's a little bit creepy but let, so you already mentioned uh whistler so yeah. we need we need to mention the fact that whistler uh makes his appearance here and one of the not only is whistler just kind of a significant character especially to the history of angel but um, I think of Whistler as very important because even though I've argued that there have been examples of this before, this is finally kind of like the dates that we see on the screen that even casual viewers can't ignore anymore. Whistler yeah. is the first like crystal clear on screen, uh, indisputable example of uh, the idea that not all demonic beings are inherently evil and murderous. Right. And he, I believe, was an agent of the powers that be later on on that on. Um, And yeah, since this is his debut, um, I think that it's interesting because there's not only do you realize, okay, so not all demons are bad, but they are there are some demons that are like really trying to um, help along in the fight like he specifically gives her that whole um mantra like you need to know how to use it you and like you're alone and like getting her to the point where she can basically say 
when Angel is like going, you know, you're all alone, you have nothing, what do you have? And she's like, me. Right. And um, I think he got her um, to that point because I don't think she would have connected it. Maybe she would have, but um, there was that dialogue that they had in Giles's apartment that I thought um, was specifically interesting um, because all of his voiceovers too in this episode were very prominent, right? Like. Mm-hmm. This was a very, um, it was an episode about air quote becoming, but um, really about um, finding a new level of yourself and your place in the world. So, um, and accepting you for who you are, yourself for who you are, um, which is the whole Buffy coming out scene with Joyce. Um, yeah, Whistler's a very interesting guy. And Max Perlick, the actor that plays Whistler, he's he's pretty prolific. I mean, he's been in all sorts of stuff. Um, I, I, I'm not going to pull up his resume, but I, I know that he's been in some some pretty big stuff. I think. Okay, I lied. I am going to bring up his resume and look really quick because I think he had a prominent role in, um, oh, Homicide Life on the Street. I guess is what people claim. Uh, he's most recognizable from he had a recurring role as a character on that but anyways um he i know that he's you know an accomplished actor but i'm sure it's just that this is two full seasons of us being familiar with all of the other characters and so he's kind of the newbie but when i said earlier that all of the actors turned in fine performances i actually think he was the weak spot like I love the character of Whistler, and I, I, I'm not—I I don't want to poo-poo him too much. But in terms of like on-screen acting, I thought he was kind of the weak spot. No, I think yeah, no, I can. I'll accept that. <laughs> I think that yeah, like I accept that. No, okay. um, I accept that as. But I think also he doesn't like as much as he has. He doesn't have many like much to work with, right? Uh, yeah. And it's again that kind of like Angel was one note up till the point up to like these episodes where he gets to actually play, right? Um, and Whistler, I don't think really ever gets to get to that point. Um, maybe, maybe yeah. not. Well, we I know. I don't remember how much of him we see. I know we see him again, that we get more Whistler at some point, but I don't think we get a bunch. No, we don't. Not until really um, the comics. Okay. Damn those comics. Yeah. Those things are going to I know. Damn the canon. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So I, I sort of interrupted your flow talking about Buffy uh, to interject Whistler into there. But yeah, we you, you were saying that we get to see, we finally get to see Buffy pre-Sunnydale. Yes, which is interesting because I'm like, I thought, I I wasn't sure, like, I mean, I've seen this episode, I saw this one I've aired, but like, it's weird because the movie is somewhat still in this universe, but not really, it's not, it's mm-hmm. kind of like negated, right? But at the same time, I was like thinking of even more of a ditzy Buffy than like innocent, sweet Buffy, I guess. I would call her. Um, she just, maybe because I was associating like pre-Sunnydale with L.A. Buffy in the movie, that I had a, it was interesting to see Sarah's take on it in such a way that was 
um, she was very innocent. Like that, I didn't describe her as like Valley. I, in, she was an innocent character and she played her innocently. Um, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. And I was thinking about that, uh, because I've, I feel like prior to this, there had been some hints or suggestions that before she came to Sunnydale, she basically had been Cordelia. Like she was the Cordelia of her school. Yes, and exactly. we get we get a a tiny hint of that when she's like walking with her girlfriends and talking about who's going to ask her to the dance and all that. But but even that, um, I mean, she's kind of saying stuff that we would expect a Cordelia to say. But she there's not quite as much snark and venom in her delivery as Charisma Carpenter has brought to Cordelia. So you're right, uh, she she seems a little more like young and innocent and less uh, mean girl than I thought that she was going to be. Exactly. I thought she was going to be like the bitchy cheerleader because they definitely hype her up as that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And it failed to deliver. Um, (laughs) But, and also that outfit, I just, I can't even. Um, (laughs) Wait, which, which one, the one that she at school or when she wears the puffy jacket to go slaying? The puffy jacket. The puffy jacket, yeah. <laughs> it's great, but at the same time, I'm like, oh. Um, and it looked like pajama pants, didn't it? It did. <laughs> like when she when she comes home afterwards and she's talking to Joyce and she like takes off the puffy jacket. She's she's in her pajamas. <laughs> yeah, it looked like she was wearing pajamas, and I was expecting her. I was expecting Joyce to say something, but no, didn't say anything. So <laughs> I have to assume that those weren't pajamas. That must just be what she was wearing. Right. Exactly. Anyways. And. We know she was a virgin until this season, so I don't know why right. like, they were so up- I guess I understand why the parents would be so upset that she was with Tyler. Um, who is this Tyler? I want to meet this Tyler. Um, oh, poor Tyler gets such a bum rap. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so. And we, we, we have- get to see um, if the trivia that I looked up is correct, so we see briefly her original watcher and I believe what, what I, my research showed is that that is the only time we ever see an American watcher. Oh yeah. That makes sense. Even yeah. No, I, I What's think, up with that? I think all <laughs> the other watchers that we ever meet are all British. Well, no Kendra's watcher is, he? well, we don't know, but we, we, we don't meet him. him. We don't know anything about him. So, that's true. Damn. I wonder, and Faith didn't have a watcher, did she? She, let's, let me see if I remember this correctly. I think she had a watcher that died. And died. so Wesley is sent as her replacement watcher. Is that correct? That's what it is. Yes. Yeah. No, I thought, yeah, he gets like killed in front of her or something like that. And she like runs or something like that. I don't remember. Yeah. Which was also interesting was the, at the end of the episode where Cordelia runs, um, uh-huh. because Cordelia's transformation throughout Angel and throughout the show, right, is like she becomes Buffy and her character do have a lot in common. Right. It's I, I think the difference is the snarkiness. Um, I think there's a line in Angel where she says, like, I'm Cordelia. I don't think I know. And I was like, that's the epitome <laughs> of Cordelia. Whereas Buffy would, I don't think, would ever, like, deliver that out, <laughs> outright. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's the difference. Like, you know, she's a little more passive, and uh, she can read people instead of just blurting out her thoughts. Um, she can read her audience. But um, there is 
you know, there's this overlapping thing and there's like the fact that um, she's, she has Cordelia run and then in Helpless, which is a couple of episodes later in season three, um, we see her like not having powers and having to run, right? Like, mm-hmm. so, and she, I, I just find it interesting though that um, she was like, you did the right thing. And um, then kind of like has to take that and interpolate it and do it later on. Um, I don't know. I just, I found it interesting. It was like a throwaway thing. And I was like, huh, um, that was really compassionate of you at the same time as like, okay. <laughs> See, and I had a, I agree with all that, but I had a slightly different reaction when, when that happened and when like Cordelia actually ran away and when everybody regroups at the hospital and we find out that she not only kind of ran away just out of the scene, like off camera, she like ran, like she ran away like way away. Um, and this is a weird reaction for me to have. Cause I'm so sort of protective of these characters and hypersensitive to, um, I don't know, certain types of criticism. Uh, anyways, I just thought how interesting it was that all of the other characters, um, even characters, even Willow who, you know, I don't think you could argue is not the most physically imposing member of the team. They will stand and fight no matter how terrible the situation is. I mean, they'll run down the hallway to get away from vampires, but like we never see a scene where Willow uh, like runs, runs away and and just gets away basically. Right. Right, Exactly. I mean, am I making sense? It just, it felt weird that Cordelia is the one that like completely runs away and she doesn't get to come back to the scene until after every, like after everything's been dealt with. Yeah. I, that is interesting. And I think what's also interesting is that like knowing where Cordelia goes and the fact that she can, like she is physical, but she's also athletic. right? Right. So like the fact that she hasn't been training or doing anything to like, protect herself up till this point besides run mm-hmm. or hide behind Buffy or Xander while Xander gets knocked out and she just runs like um has been it's kind of interesting to me because I don't see that in like being consistent with like Cordelia as a character who is like a go-getter and she takes what she needs and wants yeah. um so I just I do find that interesting like that she she does like you know, throw punches every now and again, but, um, she's never like actually had like any kind of like actual fight scene. And also was Willow trying to push the bookcase on them or was she just hiding? I think she was just hiding behind the bookshelf and then that vampire pushed it on top of her. Okay. That's what I was thinking. And I was like, so Willow wasn't even much help. She was just hiding. So like now, I mean, to I suppose to <laughs> okay, be... she was super helpful in this episode, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to be fair, I guess the that situation was um, even though the sort of minion vampires were no more impressive than any of the other disposable cannon fodder minion vampires we ever see on the show. Um, that scene was supposed to be like super significant because Drusilla shows up on the scene, and. Um, first of all, we're, we get to see that Drusilla is a lot more physically capable than we might've expected considering how sort of meek and, and addled she has seemed up to this point. Uh, like Spike right. does all the fighting and she's the one he, he's her protector or whatever. She shows up and she like motions for 
Kendra to come get her or whatever and and holds her own. So um, that was impressive. And obviously she has some uh, mesmerism ability, which not all vampires in the Buffyverse have. Right. Just her and Dracula, as far as I know, correct? And the, ma- mean, and the master. And the master. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, um, yeah I forgot about that. Um, yeah, but it, it's also, it's kind of like the unclearness of, like, are, are her visions, like, psychic? Are they, like, linked to the powers that be? Like, what exactly is going on with her, like, metaphysically, if you will? Mm-hmm. Because it does feel like if anybody has like a split personality besides angel of like demon vampire, it feels like Drusilla does. Um, Because she's so there's like just these two spirally ends of her, the insane broken person and the demon that can go ahead and kill Kendra with, you know, mesmerizing powers and razor sharp nails. Um, (laughs) Which is also a little unrealistic because I was like looking at her nails and Friend, I'm like, the, the, not that that sharp. The, ra- the razor tipped French manicure that she had? Yeah, like what's up with that? Uh, yeah, who knows? Um, but yeah. So... I don't know. I Drusilla, and I'm sure somebody, maybe you, but I'm sure somebody will say, would you please just shut up and read the comics? Because uh, maybe, maybe this is dealt with in the comics. I don't know. But Drusilla is a deeply fascinating character to me and I, I don't feel we do get much more of her and she does pop up in angel, of the series and, and like, I love every time she's on screen, but there's a lot about Drusilla that I would like to explore. Like I, I she needs her own spinoff series is where I'm going with this, but. And the actress looks young enough to still pull it off. So mm-hmm, you know, yeah. Yeah. Off if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because uh, in the flashback, to uh, what was hers it was 1860 london uh when we see still human drusilla uh it's made clear that she's always had these visions this sort of psychic ability before she became a vampire so right exactly and she is obviously of a time where visions are um considered you know devil worship uh so it is interesting to me, though, that she's always had these visions. We we kind of get this mythology. Um, but at the same time, um, because we also learn later on that she's like also she's obviously very spiritual in this um, scene. But we also get later on that she like became a nun, correct? Or it was the day she was supposed to take her vows. Or did she take her vows? She... Uh can't remember if she had taken them or if it was the day she was going to yeah i I think it was the day she was going to maybe but it's interesting because she's like she has this like innate psychic ability but she's always tried to run from it and um now it's the thing that i feel like is keeping her um i think it's the thing that's keeping her like okay maybe not keeping her insane but um, it definitely does not help. <laughs> oh yeah, her mental health. <laughs> I'm telling you, the spinoff that I wished we had gotten, what post Angel was, Spike setting out on a mission to save Drew, the way that he and theoretically Angel had been saved before. Which is this is this is the thing we're going to talk about when we get to the the end 
of of these two episodes. I, I want to discuss this notion of vampires being saved, but we can work up to that. Yeah. Uh, um, I want to ask. Um, oh, let's see. I'm trying to trying to move us past all the flashbacks, but I do want to ask one more flashback related question, uh, specifically about um, Angel in. 1996 when we get to see him living in the alleyways or whatever um i can't remember if whistler calls him by he must call him by the name angel because my notes here i'm talking about i refer to him as angel instead of angelus and i'm usually careful about that in my notes and my question is had he begun going by that name yet um darla spike and drew have all known him by that name by the name angel that's what everybody keeps calling him and yet you would think back in the day when they were all hanging out, when they were all part of this killer crew, he was Angelus. So I, I'm just wondering when the name Angel came into use. I don't remember, but I don't think they actually, they probably don't talk about that, but I do remember that they talk about uh, Giles talks when he's looking up in the episode Angel. Um, he talks about how he became called known as angel because he had the angel face. Yeah. What was the actual line? Did he call him Angelus? The, the vampire with the face of an angel or something like that. I can't, Ooh, I can't remember. I don't know. It was something about the face of an angel, but I can't remember if he called him Angelus in, in that. Yeah. He, he probably didn't so. because I'm sure he would have said Angelus and I would have complained about it. <laughs> <laughs> Drives me nuts. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, he's British. He can get away with it. Okay, sure. <laughs> You're like, sure about that. Sure. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure about the angel angelus and when it comes, where it comes from and when it comes, but that's the. I always assumed that because of his good looks, that's why um, um, he was called, you know, angel. I'm sure that this stuff, uh, there, there's probably an answer to this stuff. I'm sure somebody, at least one person listening right now is pulling their hair out, wishing that they could yell at me in real time. But <laughs> uh, anyways, just drop us an email, uh, conswithdead at gmail.com. Uh, so Oz is back for, for like the first time in what feels like forever. I feel so. What was the last time we saw him? Was it phases? I think it was phases. So I don't know how many episodes that is. Three or four episodes, maybe. Or with a passion. No, it was phases. I don't know. It yeah, just, it's been like a couple episodes. Yeah, it seems like a while since we've since Oz has been back. So, And I adore him, so it's always great to see him. And I love the sort of gimmick that's associated with him right now. Maybe I'm overselling it because maybe it's only twice. But I feel like it must have been in phases uh, where we discovered his love for animal crackers like the little circus box animal crackers and, right. in, and in his first scene in this episode when willow's sitting on his lap there's a an open box of animal crackers on the table in front of him <laughs> so that's clearly his I, thing i did not catch that damn <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyways uh, he doesn't really get an awful lot to do in these episodes but still it's always good to have him on screen but he gets to support Willow while she does right. the most important spell of all time. Um, and there's an interesting line that um, 
Giles gives to Willow when uh, she said, or he's she's like, I'm going to do it, and he's like, if you channel these potent magics or whatever, um, it will open. It could possibly open a door. Um, and I think that this is it's interesting because I think I wonder if the door is um, like her, like where her character ultimately goes. Mm-hmm. The fact that her first spell was also like a really hard spell and not, you know, floating a pencil. Um, <laughs> though it, it it does it does uh, um, kind of confuse me why it takes her so long to kind of beef up um beef up her skills right but it is like the first time we get her to do magic um it is also um the first time we see somebody do magic for a good reason instead of um for personal gain or evil um so that is interesting to me because it's like and- willow becomes the embodiment of female power and which is our metaphor um, womanhood, right? So, right. and the things men fear. <laughs> Unless you count the disinvitation spell or whatever you call that, which I, 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 there, I guess there's some debate on whether or not that counts as like Willow's first spell. Cause I guess all she was doing was reading, reading the incantation while other people were burning herbs. And I, I don't know. I, I kind of think of that as her first spell, but no, that is true. That's uh, true. And but also, that that obviously um, that obviously wasn't as big a deal as serious an issue as this. Like she wasn't channeling the forces of darkness or whatever to do that. Yeah, which I don't know how that would even work. Um, so yeah, no, she wasn't doing anything like major. But at the same time, this is the first time where she's channeling or doing anything um, that obviously physically affects her, um, which she obviously does a lot more of. Uh, specifically in the season six premiere, right? Like mm-hmm. magic uh, represents as like causing physical symptoms um, for her. You have the, um, the skate spell or whatever, the teleportation spell. Um, I think it's called, that's what she says, the skate, which I don't even think is a real Latin word, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> um, but she, uh, she has the nosebleeds and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I find uh, this like being the kind of turning point for her character. And I think that when you look at season three and what like she does, it is the turning point for her. Um, I, I think probably in the context of the show, as it was being written and sort of structured at this point in its development, I feel like Giles is warning to her that, you know, channeling these forces through you can open a gate that you may not be able to close again or whatever. Uh, And then the scene when she's actually doing the spell and it's obvious that she's, you know, she's getting worn out and she looks like she's, she's maybe about to faint or whatever. And then all of a sudden she like throws her head back and her eyes open wide and she just starts chanting clearly. I think we, we might've been meant to read that as, okay, something just like something bad just happened. Like she just a doorway just opened, just like Giles said, and there's probably going to be consequences for this, right? Maybe she's possessed or whatever. I feel like that was sort of the, the subliminal scare that we were supposed to get from this. However, now knowing like knowing where her character arc goes in the future, I would kind of interpret what happened there as, I mean, whatever it was, whatever door that she opened, whatever like kick that she got there, whatever charge, or 
I'm, I'm going to use the word rush specifically, um, it wasn't necessarily her like becoming possessed or whatever. It's her discovering the, the rush of using magic that she will become addicted to later on. Hmm. I like that. Maybe. Yeah. I can kind of see that. So even though, even though I have my issues with how freaking on the nose that particular metaphor becomes in season six, like that, that uh, magic is a drug metaphor is hammered the hell into our foreheads all season (laughs) long in season six. And it really grated on me after a time. Um, I do. That is kind of how I'm looking at what happened to her here. This was the first, this was her first hit. And it's almost like the, it's her first hit. (laughs) Okay. So it is her first hit. Um, if we're going to use the addiction metaphor, but at the same time, it's not, um, to me, I never looked at it as like straight up magic being the drug, even though that was the thing, right? Like that Mm -hmm. was the conduit. I viewed it as power. Um, being the drug like I viewed it as this metaphor for people having obscene amount of power kind of like um, you know like you're controlling the forces of nature right but Mm -hmm. you're at the same time you are um, you are doing something that other people can't do and I think that it was it's part of a fear thing but at the same time power is addictive right that's you know, and whether that's just straight up magic or using magic as the conduit to explore that power is addictive. Um, but at the same time, it does. I believe you said, or it, Marty Noxon takes over during that point of the series, season uh, six. Yeah. And I, it definitely reads as um, a drug, but at the same time, I don't like that as a metaphor. I really just hate that season though so much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I I absolutely have my issues with it. I, I I'm I'm hoping on this revisit that I can get to a point where I won't say I hate season six because that's such a trigger for so many people for me to say I hate season six. But there well, are there are things in it I don't uh, like. I was rewatching. Uh, I think it was um, see, uh, the finale uh, of season six, mm-hmm. and I was just like, "Damn, this is not." Uh, good and then i started watching season seven and i'm like oh this is good again um, <laughs> which is just funny because a lot of people also don't love season seven um so people are like after season five it should have ended um, well i so, feel like the yeah. you're you're uh you wanting to look at it we're getting a little off topic we're talking so much about the future of willow but just briefly you're looking at it as sort of an addiction to power less than an addiction to magic specifically I think that's a fair read. I also feel like that larger metaphor, like the the sort of addictive properties of having power of some kind, I feel like that is a larger theme, a larger metaphor that plays out over more than just Willow, plays out over many of the characters in different ways. And Willow's role in that sort of larger metaphor was the magic is drug, because remember, there's the whole, she ha- she has a, a dealer she like she has a literally yes oh yeah. my god the dealer <laughs> yeah so anyways um, yeah that oh and then yeah no i can't even with that let's let's focus on season two <laughs> yeah let's come let's come back let's come back so um uh we get the first buffy and spike team up happens here yes 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I I have issues with Buffy and Spike as a couple. Okay. Okay. <laughs> For obvious reasons and where that goes. Um, but at the same time, um, I do find it interesting where he, um, the fact that even him as, like, Spike is the most morally ambiguous vampire, even as, like, evil Spike. He's not evil. Like, Mm -hmm. there's nothing really evil about him besides he kills people. Like, okay, that's pretty evil, but, like, there's nothing, like, sinister about him. He's not, like, a sadistic killer. He's just a dude Mm -hmm. killing to eat and enjoying his life. Right. I mean, he was William the Bloody and all that jazz. But... Yeah, I was, I was going to say, we we were told that he is a terrible, like, vicious, psychopathic killer. Um, but we don't see it very often. We get to see him. We I will call it the sort of the PG Buffyverse version of evil is what we get to see on screen from him <laughs> most of the time. Um, and that would have been the same of Angelus if not for this season, this season is all about, we've heard how terrible Angel used to be. And this season we get to see how terrible (laughs) Angel used to be and can be again. Um, Yeah. But yeah, Spike, Spike tends to be just the, the sort of selfish hedonist vampire, which is why I, I really kind of dig, I'd forgotten about the whole judge thing and he brought the judge in to destroy the world and yada, yada. I kind of, I had for, forgotten all about that but i do think it's appropriate that we see spike be the one that gives the whole you know we like to talk big vampires do speech i'm gonna destroy the world it's just tough guy talk yeah no that and it it makes sense like for his character up to this point like whether or not he is he is kind of like played somewhat comically um for comic effect but at the same time he is um he is especially in the last couple of episodes very strategic about what he's doing right like Mm -hmm. he's playing um what was it sit and spin Um, yes yeah super problematic but damn um (laughs) yeah i was like oh my god should i laugh at this this is no longer appropriate and it was it shouldn't have been appropriate then still um it, it yeah i just there's some there's kind of some lines where i'm just like ooh, that is very much like a friends episode where it should stay in the 90s um <laughs> yeah, there's a there is some of that there's some of that in this series yeah <laughs> yeah uh <laughs> but um oh my god i just lost where i was at he's very strategic about what he does uh, yeah I, pret- think he... I think you were going to talk about how he he lets everybody continue to believe that he's paralyzed yeah and he's really um he observes he's actually like he's very intellectual Mm -hmm. and i don't we don't see that besides the other dude that uh, reads that um was also just not very like he was just a bookworm Mm -hmm. uh that the judge kills right i don't think he even has a name he he did but i can't remember what it was it started with a d okay he's negligible (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I kind of like this vampire, like rewatching it. I was like, I kind of like him. I, I'm kind of sad the judge kills him. Um, Cause he's always just stealing. It's kind of funny. It's just <laughs> like, he's like this little minion. Um, but as far as Spike goes, uh, I think this is the first time we see him 
Like, first off, it's the first time he successfully executed a plan. <laughs> Good, yeah, true, true. <laughs> but we also see him uh, actually kind of step up. I think that the fact that he does have this, you know, conversation, he kind of um, embraces um, his circumstances. Again, like this idea of becoming, like being a metaphor for accepting who you are and where you're at. Um, and moving forward from that. And the only way you can move forward is by embracing it, right? And I think that he's gotten to the point, obviously, where he's comfortable with his little life of eating victims in alleyways. And um, his I think he calls them Happy Meals on Wheels, or Happy Meals, or what is it? Yeah, he says, so he raises a super valid point that I... I'm pretty sure even on my first watch of this series, I had been thinking you've got all these vampires like Angelus who come in and say they want to end the world. And my thought is, but you, did you ever watch the animated tick series? Uh, yes, I did. I, f- I feel like I've made this joke on the podcast before, but I'm going to do it again. There's an episode of the tick cartoon where someone is interviewing him and they're like, so what are your powers? Are you super strong? Can you do this? Can you destroy the world? And the ticks like, Oh my gosh, I hope not. That's where I keep all my stuff. Um, th- so that's exactly what I think of when Angelus comes in and he's like, yes, a couple is going to devour the entire world. And I'm like, well, then what are you going to do? <laughs> like, what happens to you? Sure. Maybe you'll go to hell, but what about all the people? So yeah, Spike says, I like this world. You've got dog racing, Manchester United, and you've got people, billions of people walking around like happy meals with legs. It's all right here. Yeah. And that's all he wants. He doesn't want the world to end he just wants to live his his best life (laughs) his best life exactly yeah he's just trying to self-actualize he's just trying to (sighs) self-actualize anyways um so going on to more becoming themes um buffy's coming out to uh her mom is Uh really interesting because it's a metaphor for a lot of things, right? Um, it's the like growing up speech, like, Hey, I'm an adult. I have responsibilities. It's the metaphor for coming out of the closet. It's a lot of different metaphors, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's really interesting to see how Joyce reacts. Um, when Buffy, I believe has already told her a few times before, but she didn't believe her. Am I correct about that? There was a couple throwaway lines. Um, well, I mean, like she, she's blurted it out. Um, she blurted it out when she was in the hospital under, like, when she was drugged up. She said something about, "I've, I've got to get out of here. I got to go fight the vampires or whatever." But I don't think she's ever explicitly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I know we, the audience, have screamed at Joyce a thousand times at this point. You idiot! Your daughter is the vampire slayer. <laughs> but I don't think Buffy has come out and said it. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like how she what was the um in school hard where she like hits uh Spike with the axe but she's like totally okay to see disfigured people's faces and thinks it's like drugs or whatever they say. <laughs> yeah. Uh bike biker gangs on PCP. <laughs> yes. And it just doesn't make sense up to this point. It's like, wow. Um Yeah, so but her response to it is very interesting to me. Um, and also the fact that there's the line, like, have another drink. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like, wait, does Joyce have a drinking problem now? <laughs> like, was it 
was it just me where I was like, wait, does she have a drinking problem all of a sudden? Like, um, I just thought it was very oddly constructed, but also beautiful because it's the first time Buffy's um, really owning herself as an adult. I loved that scene for all of the metaphors, the, the, the metaphorical coming outs that you were referring to. Um, but also, first of all, I think Sarah Michelle Geller um, actually outacts Christine Sutherland in that scene, which um, yeah, I don't, that probably shouldn't come as a surprise, but I, th- I, I don't know enough about Christine Sutherland, but I think of her as one of the adult actors on the show. So I, I expect <laughs> her to like really be proficient and, um, she's not terrible or anything, but like her emotions, uh, Sarah Michelle Geller gets her emotion across crystal clear in that scene. And in the scene, like after Buffy leaves and Joyce kind of collapses back against the, the kitchen Island or whatever, I would expect to see like tears or like, I'd expect to see her mother breaking down and, and she doesn't. And maybe that was an acting choice or maybe Christine Sutherland just couldn't you know, summon tears uh, at that moment or whatever. I'm not sure, but um, I just felt like Sarah's emotion in that scene was more powerful than Joyce's. However, I hadn't thought about the casual reveal that maybe Joyce has a drinking problem that hadn't dawned on me until you just pointed that out. But that glass of alcohol uh, did allow the most uh, striking bit of emotion from Joyce when Buffy says, Oh, have another drink or whatever. And her mother hurls that glass across the kitchen and shatters a glass full of booze on the kitchen wall or whatever and starts screaming at Buffy. That was a really powerful moment for me. I don't know what it was about that, of seeing her throw that glass that really affected me. Well, like, even, I think up till now, we saw her as the nurturing single mother who is doing everything to give her daughter the best life. And this is definitely out of character for her up till this point of her. Um, Cause she, even when she grounded her and stuff, that was all out of like a loving aspect. This was the first time where I think we see Joyce outside of the fact that she's not, she's a, she's a human um, yeah. with like her own process. She's not just an extension of Buffy for Buffy's plot device. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, but I do find it interesting because she's so, um, there's the sense of non-belief, right. That you get, like there's the, when you come out of the closet, at least, um, in experiences, sometimes people will like to like downplay it. Um, they're like, Oh, you're not sure, whatever. Um, yeah. and she definitely had that, you know, definitely in the parlor. And then when she has to actually have to face it, um, I just, I do find it interesting because there is the shock. It is just a true metaphor for. I mean, she gets the, the, the subtext becomes text as is often the case on the show. When uh, Joyce says, I mean, have you tried not being a slayer? Yes, exactly. I'm like, wait, so you are literally writing this for, um, which it's interesting because we also have uh, the Larry scene this season as well. Uh So I'm wondering Uh if this was like, which was, which was not played poorly as well. Done. Yeah. It was poorly done and it was actually kind of offensive yeah. watching it. Yeah. Um, cause it was played for a punchline. 
Um, and I'm wondering and if repeatedly a... and repeatedly they wouldn't let it go. Like Xander just kept being disgusted by the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that kind of bothered me. Um, and he was in the funny thing is even going into the future when Amy turned back, um, from the rat uh spoiler <laughs> she um like we've gone past that anyways uh she um like they still make like oh larry's gay too like it was still a punchline um like everything about larry is a punchline um yeah that's kind of sad uh but this is the first time i think they like did it justice uh well did a scene you know of i feel like that intent i feel like the intent was there whether or not directly but Knowing Joss, it was probably um, meant to be a metaphor for that. Because um, you're also, this is around, this is right after the time we had Ellen come out. So mm. you have, this is something that's already broken into the mainstream. So, um, and I think Dawson's Creek, the, I don't know if the character, uh, whatever, Smith's character, I think his name is Smith, um, whatever, uh, Per Smith is it? Um, comes out, right? I'm, uh, I'm completely oblivious to all Dawson's Creek stuff. I can't help you with this one. <laughs> okay, so I'm completely... Uh, I'm, I'm not going to go there. But um, And I also... We didn't do a spoiler alert for Dawson's Creek. So, oh, right. Um, yes. <laughs> sorry. Spoiler. One of the characters is gay. Um, but yeah, anywho. Um, I think there was... It's a cultural shift around that time. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's reflected in this mm-hmm. episode. So, but Sarah's Sarah's emotion gives you the feels. Like you actually are like you're emotionally affected by that. Like this is the biggest reveal of her life. She doesn't want to be rejected by her mother or who she is, but she has to save the world again. So she'd rather be studying. (laughs) So you, um, I I can edit this out if you don't want to have this conversation uh, briefly on a silly Buffy podcast. But you said that you saw this episode on its first, on its original airing. And I believe if I remember correctly from our previous talk, you were eight or nine years old at the time. Yeah, I was young. So how did you process this at, at the time? Did, did like this, the significance of this moment sink in gradually, or did you sort of recognize and, and maybe even identify with what was happening even then? Well, so I mean, I always knew I was gay. So, like, for me, um, I think that there was, it wasn't, I don't, I never had, like, an exact um, clear, like, reading of it until later on. But I did feel it emotionally, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you feel it before you process it intellectually. And that's definitely um, the effect of this the scene um, and episode for me, uh, which is why I think it still holds up for me, um, even though there is a lot of issues with it. And it still affects me as emotionally as it does, as it did back then. Um, that um, you have a scene, you have this ability to, you know, represent some, the Slayer is a metaphor for insert any kind of otherness, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you have this um, scene that allows for that otherness to be revealed to somebody that is not in on your secret, whether that be like, say you have a mental health disability and you're confessing for the first time that you have, you know, depression or whatever, um, or you have, 
uh, or you're gay or you're um, a passing biracial person. Like the otherness, like confessing can be sometimes that intense. And especially to somebody that you don't want to let down, if you will. Um, so I think that it, I definitely felt it. Um, and I don't think though, when I was a kid that I uh, clearly knew, like um, knew the words I was connecting with. Uh, I don't even know if that's making sense. It's not making sense. No, I'm, I'm following you. I'm following you. Okay. Uh, I, even at almost 50 years old, I still much more frequently uh, identify with things emotionally first and, and possibly like uh, emotionally first and then intellectually later, if ever. <laughs> so I completely understand what you're talking about where it, there, there was an emotional truth that you recognized, even if you didn't quite uh, like intellectually process it at the time. Is that, is I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Is that correct? Is that what you were saying? No, I think that's beautiful. You said it way better than I did. Yeah. Well, well. Um, so uh, if you're all right, can we move on to Xander's big moment? Yeah, go ahead. So Xander is my uh, favorite beloved character to bash on. <laughs> Apparently, I still love Xander. I, I apologize for any Xander fans out there. Hello, Ember. Welcome to the podcast. Um, but yeah, so this... I feel like this episode gives us the big Xander moment that even even a lot of Xander fans, um, even 20 years later, are unwilling to sort of forgive him for or let let this go. My gosh, I apologize. My cat cannot stand the sound of my voice. Apparently <laughs> she wants <laughs> telling me to shut up. Anyways, uh, this is Xander's big uh, kick his ass moment that kind of lives in infamy in the fandom from now till the end of time. Yes. And um, it is also mentioned later on in season seven. Um, and Buffy has known and she has forgiven him. However, it is kind of like bullshit. <laughs> I, I had completely forgotten that, uh, that Buffy mentions that she had figured this out and she forgives him. I forgot that was a thing. Yeah. There was a, well, she doesn't like specifically say, um, it was, I believe, let me see, it was in episode, it was in Selfless. Okay. Um, and it's briefly touched upon that she knew he lied, but she's like obviously not held it against him up to this point. So, um, I don't, we don't know when she finds out or whatever, but we do know, um, she does bring it, uh, bring it up in Selfless to him. Okay. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I totally forgotten that. For I, I, for some reason, I was thinking that this is a thing that just goes that the, I know for a fact at least portions of the Buffy fandom, like have raged on for twenty years now, and I, I kind of thought it just went unaddressed in the show. But the the larger thing with Xander in these two episodes for me is um, the the notion Xander's unreasoning hatred of Angel. Um, pure male jealousy of teenage yeah it's just it's a little difficult for me to swallow and I and I get as with so much of the things that I'm kind of nitpicking about this show on this rewatch um, needs to we need to take into consideration he's a confused and selfish teenage boy I you know I, I get all that I should be able to accept that this is a realistic if annoying character trait slash flaw 
<laughs> of someone that's his supposed age and blah, blah, blah. Um, but as a, as a genre fan, just watching it now, all these years later, it's just a little bit grating. And these episodes give us a shining example. Like he almost comes to blows with Giles. Oh yeah. Over the, um, Jenny comment, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's so invested in his hatred of angel and wanting to see angel like die at all costs that he will casually throw out an insensitive comment about Jenny and like have Giles come at him of all people. And, and Xander didn't even back down. Like they, if Buffy hadn't gotten between them, like they were like Xander was getting right up in Giles's face. It's so, it's so nuts to me how far they, they push his loathing of that character. Yeah. I, so I have a lot of issues with Xander. Um, as I guess you do as well. Um, (laughs) Xander is the, uh, Joss insert character. Yeah. And I think that, um, uh, I just feel that, um, uh, I don't want to say he's unnecessary, but he's freaking obnoxious as all fuck. I want him out. Like I seriously, it's really hard to watch a lot of his scenes. Like he can ruin episodes for me. Um, and I think this season particularly, um, the only thing that made him palatable was the fact that he had scenes with Cordelia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like Cordelia. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, this, the amount of hate he has for Angel is obnoxious. Um, and yeah, I just kind of, I'll pull the bandaid off. It's really bad. Um, <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing to sugarcoat about it. It's obnoxious. Um, however, he kind of somewhat gets over it, but not, um, I mean, it's also weird because he's very possessive of Buffy as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it goes beyond the idea of, um, protecting your friends. It's very like, I own her property, male issues. Um, you know, we're, it's very like uh, I don't want to say rapey, but it's like that idea of like male boundaries and knowing that um, you don't own a woman. Um, well, and, and I feel like that is, and, and that even translate. I mean, he even applies that to Willow. Like Zan- mm-hmm. th- this is the thing about Xander, and again, because I, I know for a fact, at least a couple of the listeners that I am personally familiar with are Xander fans, so I don't I don't want to upset anybody. But Xander is a problematic character for me, and he he definitely has that ownership, that sort of entitled feeling of ownership about Buffy, um, despite the fact that he is in a what increasingly seems like a sort of committed relationship with Cordelia. But then in these episodes, we also see that um, he still feels a little possessive of Willow. Yeah. And it's also, um, so it's the ownership, but at the same time, he, I don't want to say, actually, since there are Xander fans, I kind of want to bite my tongue on this one. (laughs) (laughs) He's not all bad, but he, 
he does have some issues with boundaries and he's super problematic. I'm so, it. And his, I'm, his I'm sorry. Say, your, your, your audio cut out for just a second. Say that oh. again. Yeah. So he, um, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, he has a very insecure male ego and angel is, an alpha male in this, it's, even though that's not a concept that exists, he's an alpha male as read by Xander. So of course his ego's bruised, right? Yeah. Um, he doesn't have good relationships with men. Um, I don't think there's really many men on the show that he has relationships with. I don't think he even really likes Riley that much, if I'm correct, if I'm remembering correct. Um, he just doesn't do good with other men. Um, and I think that's a character problem with him. Mm-hmm. Again, possibly a believable, like realistic character problem, but just as it would be a little, just as it can be uncomfortable to have real people with these behaviors in your life, I think it's appropriate for us to, to be, you know, upset about this arguably realistic trait in a fictional character that we are spending time with. Yeah, especially if it normalizes it, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, representation matters. Um, yeah, I, I and you have to chalk it up to it's also a product of the '90s, right? Like, this is um, as much as it's progressive and it um, was groundbreaking in feminist values. Um, it also is a product of a. a I might, I shouldn't probably say this, but a second wave bonus. And yeah, I don't know. You should probably cut that. <laughs> I, I will if you want me to. You want me to? Yeah, go ahead and do that. <laughs> All right, I'll cut that out. Um, so we, uh, there's so much more I want to talk about. And I always feel like getting off on a tangent when I talk about Xander. But obviously, we, we need to talk about sort of the, the big stuff that happens at the very end. We can't, we can't just dance, <laughs> dance around this. Some significant things happen at the end of this episode, the end of this season. So we should talk about those. Um, um, yeah, that, that follow after Xander's big moment of deception. So what that means is, is Buffy goes into the fight, um, not knowing that she needs to pull her punches. Yeah. Um, and it's probably saves her life in all honesty. Yeah. yeah. Um, but at the same time it is, um, oh, the, that the scenes are both beautiful and tragic at the same time. Right. Like mm -hmm. the fight between her and Angelus, um, and the fact that he basically breaks her down to realizing the only person she has right now is herself. Um, it's just it's it's uh it's very emotional and intense to watch. I remember like I actually remember the first time I was like super excited that she like basically like headbutts them and then I was like the second time after knowing what happened, I start getting like more emotional about it. In mm -hmm. that um this is a really intense, like transformative um scene this isn't just a scene that's meant to be thrown away as part of a fight which um for like a first time viewer of it i think i mean you know that it's an intense um 
situation, right? But at the same time, um, it still feels like the story will keep on going on and on and on. Um, but it is an ending and a beginning, right? So you have um, when the soul is reintroduced, I guess, or recursed, um, when he's recursed, um, that whole scene of having to kill the love of your life is just, it's insane. <laughs> I mean, it, so I've said before that I, um, uh, I had never like fully invested in the Buffy and Angel relationship. Um, but, and I, I never really did. Uh, I think actually on this rewatch, I'm more attached to it than I ever have been before, which kind of surprises me. Although I guess not because over the years I have fallen in love with the character of Angel, but regardless of whether or not you are a, you consider yourself a Buffy and angel shipper, just the raw emotion of these two characters and the performances of both actors. And the fact that you have just in theory, you have just watched an entire season that has, you know, in no uncertain terms been building to this moment, um, makes it super powerful, makes it very, very emotional. And, um, again, major props for Sarah Michelle Gellar's performance uh, across these and both of these episodes from the beginning uh, as she has just gradually been like the entire season has been basically beating her down uh, over this tragic love affair. But these episodes in particular are about showing her uh, that she is alone and she can't, or, or at least making her feel like she is alone and she can't rely upon anybody else. And, um, yeah. I mean, she gets kicked out of school. She, her mother tells her, you know, don't, if you walk out the door, don't even think about coming back. And, um, yeah. And then she has to do this where he, he, in the, the microcosm in that specific battle, he breaks her down and talks about how, you know, she has only herself and then she has to kill the love of her life. Yeah. It's, it is completely, uh, appropriately tragic and melodramatic and uh, believable that the season ends the way it does, that this episode ends the way it does with her uh, riding off into the sunset. Literally. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. I just, oof. Um, I do like that. She left her mom a note. <laughs> um, I will say that uh-huh. I, I was like, at least she didn't just like say, Hey, I'm dead. She told her that, you know, like, Hey, I didn't not die. Um, which or, I, which I had forgotten. I had forgotten about the note. So I was in the back of my mind, I was thinking, do we go into season three with everybody wondering if she's dead? <laughs> but Right. No. And that is like, uh, I'm happy that she at least had enough decency to do that. Um, no, I mean like Joyce didn't really deserve it either. No, um, but <laughs> the scene where she actually has to stab him. Um, I cry like every time because it is so she is beaten down, but she does what she has to do because she embraces the calling of who she is. It is like her finally accept. It would be the equivalent of her, like finally accepting that she's gay or whatever. Um, because she finally accepts what it means to be a slayer. I think um well you say I think this is the moment you say finally but we 
but she she has to finally accept that moment many more times over the course of the series but i get i I get what you're saying yes in this moment she has finally accepted at at this she owns that yeah 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 and actually i feel like i i completely agree the scene where she she makes the decision and actually she you can see that she's made the decision before she actually stabs him that whole thing when she's kissing him and telling, you know, confessing her love and telling him to close his eyes. All of that is gut wrenching. But I feel like the, for me, at least the moment where I believed that she had, she had made her decision uh, was actually when she walked out of the house after fighting with her mother. Like when her, when her mother says, if you walk out, don't even think about coming back. And she lingers in the doorway for just a second, looks back at her mom. And, and I at least imagine that I could see that decision play across her face where she was like, well, I guess this is it then. And she walks off. Yeah. I can see what you mean there. Yeah. No, I think, Oh, it's just it, like the scene gives you chills because you're, you're, I, at least I was super invested in the angel Buffy relationship. Mm-hmm. I still am. Um, <laughs> even though they're, so not healthy for each other. It's a toxic relationship. It's way less toxic than Spike and Buffy. So uh, <laughs> I'm just going to throw that there um, to prove my point that if she has to end up with somebody, um, you know, I mean, the best person she could have ended up with was Riley for like air quote healthy relationship. But uh, <laughs> I, I <laughs> love even dysfunctional. I love how you're just triggering so much of the audience right now with it. <laughs> like don't come back <laughs> <laughs> but i am really tricky and i'm like half the audience is spike fans right like yeah. are spike fans um and no i uh, yeah i just their relationship is toxic so this is a good point i mean this is kind of the ending point of their relationship ultimately like even though they continue on mm-hmm. and into season three um you knew at this moment, Hey, it's over. Like there's, even if they do come back from it, there's really no coming back from this moment. I mean, you're literally sending your boyfriend to hell. Um, I just, I don't know. I think that this is just like her, like Sarah Michelle Gellar just owning it and like the character just owning it. And, um, it's just amazing. I, it, it's transformative. It's a very like, this is the most growth that happens in such a short amount of time on this show. I think, um, besides maybe the resurrection, um, and the gifts I'm going to throw. Okay. There's a lot of transformation on this show. (laughs) Well, there, and, and I was going to say there are a lot of, yeah, a lot of transformation, a lot of transformations, a lot of transformative moments, a lot of like powerful, significant watermarks in the series um i mean we've already had a few and there's many many more to come but this this is one of the big ones and it's only season two we get of of filmed content we have five more seasons to go we're not even halfway there and already at the end of season two we get one of like the big ones this is one of the big moments that every buffy fan remembers and has an opinion on and uh I, I believe this is one of the most significant sort of moments of significance (laughs) that the series has. Um, 
Yeah, no, I definitely believe that. Um, and that stands why it is one of my favorite. I think that it, it, the season is self-contained. I, I was wa- when I was watching all the episodes, I was like, you know what? I could have handled the show. Not, I wouldn't want it to end where it ends, like the end of the season, but I could have ended like, this is a really good like bookmark or bookends, you know, like the beginning of the season to, or well, I guess halfway through season one through now. Um, it's like a perfect story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, and I think that that's part of it is like, you're really going into a new phase in season three, right? You're going into like this and becoming an adult aspect where this was the end of her childhood kind of. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Um, and well, before we get to the very end, I just have to ask because I, I I am a massive Spike fan. I adore Spike. I love Spike and Drusilla. So while we have that whole the big momentous battle between Buffy and Angelus happening, um, we've also in the background got the slightly less momentous, I suppose, fight between uh, Spike and Drew. And I just want to ask as much as I love everything that's going on here, why, why would a sleeper hold knock Drusilla out? (laughs) I actually thought the same thing. I don't know. Um, I I don't know. (laughs) That was, I don't like, they don't have breath. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and like, he can't give CPR. So that doesn't make sense. Yeah. None of that makes sense. Like I almost, I almost would have preferred it if sort of the end of their fight had been when she like pounces on him and they're sort of trading blows or whatever. And she throws him against the wall and he's like, I don't want to hurt you, Drew. And then he just punches her right in the face and she drops and he's like, doesn't, doesn't mean I won't <laughs> whatever. If yeah. it had just ended there and he'd like picked her up and walked off, that would have been better. But just the scene of him choking her out, I was like, really? <laughs> really? Yeah, it was, I, it seemed a little, uh, I think it was for pacing reasons. Maybe I'm wrong, but because there was like a lot of flashing back between the two. Right. Um, yeah, no, it doesn't make sense. I I mean, it's a, it's a minor, it's, it's one of those, you have have to Buffy fan that away. You know, it's one of those (laughs) silly nitpicks that I'm going to have across this podcast. Sorry guys. Um, so yeah, we go out on our first, uh, my wife says this is her favorite music cue, like across the entire series. And I, I close might... your eyes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Oh no, no. She, she's, Oh, Sarah McLaughlin. Yeah. She's talking about the, we get our first Sarah McLaughlin, not our last, but we get our first Sarah McLaughlin. No, close your eyes is absolutely a beautiful in terms of the score. Um, absolutely beautiful. In fact, uh, that's the second, I think that's the second and last Emmy win that the show got. I think this. I think the score for this episode won uh, Christoph Beck and Emmy. But um, but yeah, no the the Sarah McLaughlin song is the score. My uh, wife was Full of Grace about. is beautiful. I got the album actually after uh-huh. <laughs> watching this episode, and it like became my like CD for like. Oh God, I don't even know how long. I was very emo for a while because <laughs> it's an emo song. Let's be real. But it's so good. Um, and it's so fitting for this scene um, of her, you know, leaving everything yeah. she's known. 
so emotionally like just draining dra- <laughs> draining and satisfying at once like this these episodes the song that takes us out the season as a whole it's been an emotional like roller coaster and it's pretty easy to go on because we know we're watching this with hindsight we know that there's another season about to we're about to discuss another season but i cannot remember what it was like waiting uh it was horrible like going from this sort of i mean it's technically a cliffhanger back yeah Yeah. no it was horrible i remember being like as much as i was like i am now happy with it like being that it could be an end of a story Uh um like knowing that angel is dead and like i I actually didn't want to watch for a while um because i was like do i want to watch this without this epic love. <laughs> I was really invested in the love story at like eight, nine years old. <laughs> well, so, so maybe it's good that you had a summer off. Before. Yeah, no, it was definitely good. Uh, yeah. Huh. Um, but yeah, I emotionally processed it and I continued to watch. <laughs> okay. I said, I realize um, my pacing is not going to be nearly as good as the pacing of this show of, of the series or, um, even these episodes because earlier I said I was going to save something to the end of the discussion. Uh, I, we should have talked about it before. It's going to be weird to go out on this, but I, I had um, one of my biggest hangups, I guess with the series by the end of its run is how no one ever, I don't believe, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think anyone ever again considers the possibility of saving vampires by restoring their souls. So obviously in these episodes, we learn that Willow's capable of doing it. And she only gets more and more powerful as the show goes on. Spike later down the line proves that there's more than one way of doing it. Um, And by the time both shows have run their course, we've had countless examples of beings that are either like tragically driven to evil against their will or, you know, somehow controlled or possessed or, or like deem, like I said, Whistler demons who are just outright not evil in the first place. Um, so it feels like a kind of thing that somebody in the cast or like one of the characters should have considered. Uh, but I don't think I'm not aware that the idea of helping any of these creatures find their way back to humanity ever really is seriously considered by any of our heroes again but they're okay with not killing werewolves because they're half human um yeah because i mean in phases they have that conversation right like he's like she's horrified that they're killing um that they're just gonna go ahead and kill a human being or a a a person that's you know 28 days out of the month or whatever um i i thought that um, yeah, no, I actually never thought about it. Like, why didn't they just like if Buffy can or if Willow can create all the slayers, why doesn't she just install all the vampires? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the real reason, the the meta reason is that actually this is a fake reason because I can think of plenty of ways to get around it. But some people would say the reason is well, then you wouldn't have a show <laughs> if if they could just magically cure all the vampires, then you wouldn't need a show called Buffy the Vampire Slayer, would you? And I, I would ar- I would argue that that might have made it a more interesting story. But at any rate, this is this is just laying the groundwork for things that I become frustrated with much later down the line. So I just wanted to bring it up. 
No, that is a really good point. Now I'm going to be upset while I think about it all. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've ruined it for you and probably other people in the audience. I'm a terrible. Yeah, I don't know why I haven't thought about that. Maybe because I was like happily, I was like just happily like, okay, let's not focus on this. But like, yeah, that's interesting because phases was, um, phases was, uh, they discuss this about, you know, werewolves and they constantly are willing to, you know, accept various creatures that are, you know, inflicted with things. But vampires, because they're a demon in a human's body that's dead, I guess anything goes. Unless it's Angel or Spike. Unless it's Angel or Spike. <laughs> you have to yeah. be annoying enough, right? To, uh, oh, that's what it is. Uh, you have to just be around. You have to hang around enough to get a full. <laughs> I see. All right. Well, so if I've uh, if I've ruined the show for you and any of our listeners, I guess my work here is done. Right. Yeah. Like that's 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 what I'm here for. So um, my condolences to you, Alex, and to anybody who's listening. Um, <laughs> but uh, I very much appreciate you coming back and, and joining me for another episode. And I, I can't remember if you've signed on for anything else, but you are welcome back anytime. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I have not signed up for anything yet, so we will see. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I need people like Buffy's kind of spoken for, but I'm always I'm shuffling people around to make sure everybody gets at least one turn. And I, I'm trying to bring people back when they want to come back. Um, but like very few people have signed on for Angel. So if any of Angel piques your interest, absolutely. <laughs> let me know. All right. So uh, anyways, thanks for being here, Alex. Um, how can the listeners stalk you online um yeah so twitter um at, at armchair underscore phil um so yeah um that's the best way to stalk me or academia.edu alexander lester okay there you go uh and thank you all at home for listening uh, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com or you can subscribe to the show on itunes and while you're there if you're feeling charitable please rate us or write us a review uh, it really helps spread the word about this silly little podcast that i do and bonus i'll be your best friend uh, if you have questions uh, for me as your new best friend or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com, follow us on Twitter at conswithdead, or reach out to us on the Facebook group Conversations with Conversations with Dead People. Not at all a long and confusing title. Um, that's where I would like these discussions that we start on the podcast to continue with a larger uh a larger group, a larger participation. So please check us out there next week. Um, I'm a little behind the scenes, uh, for listeners who might not be aware. I record these things so far in advance that, um, I'm about to try and do something I've never done. I'm about to try and pretend in my little next week announcement that, that I'm, you're listening to me live and you so are not. So I'm going to pretend that next week, as we record this, I'm attending the 8th Biennial Slayage Conference on the Whedon Verses. Um, what that means is I will not be releasing a podcast, an episode of this podcast next week. I'll be taking the week off uh, to go to the conference. However, I'm planning on recording some material while I'm there with the intention of, of most likely turning that uh I'm going to be on a panel there. I'm going to record that. 
maybe I'll be recording some other stuff. Maybe I'll interview some of the scholars that are there. I'm not sure, but I, I'm my plan is to put together kind of a little bonus episode uh, based on material from the Slayage conference. And uh, so that will probably be the next one. As you're listening to this, that, that will probably be the next episode that I release. And at some point following after that, we're going to kick off uh, season three. When season three uh, kicks in, we'll be discussing um, 301 and 302 Dead Man's Party and 303 Faith, Hope, and Trick. So whenever that happens, those are going to be the episodes we discuss. So uh, until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. The winter is cold and bitter. It's chill us to the bone. We haven't seen the sun for weeks. Too long, too far from home. Feel just like I'm sinking. Oh, mm-hmm.